0: Good evening and a huge welcome here to tonight's five by fifteen and I'm incredibly pleased to be able to introduce my friend and someone I admire so hugely, Jung Chang, who is joining us from Rome. Um, Jung, I'm sure is familiar to all of you who have joined in, I hope she is. She is an author and a quite extraordinary storyteller as well as a historian. She, She first came to prominence with her amazing book, Wild Swans, which charted her life growing up through the Cultural Revolution. Jung became a barefoot doctor, a steel worker, even an electrician, before getting to Cambridge and actually becoming the first person in China, I think this is right, to ever gain a PhD, while Swans, by the way, went on to sell a staggering 13 million copies. Jung followed that up with a, a 10-year project on the life of Mao, the unknown story, and it certainly was very unknown to me, and then the Empress Dao Jazisi, but her latest book, which I think she came to in a quite interesting way, which we'll probably hear about. is little sister, sorry, big sister, little sister, red sister, which is the absolutely gobsmacking story of the Soong sisters, who really were just as much of the architecture of China as indeed all the famous men of the 20th century were. They were there behind the scenes influencing things, and it reads like a thriller. It's completely gripping and quite unputdownable. Now, this is Jung's debut appearance on Zoom, and I'm incredibly happy that she's chosen us to help launch her paperback edition of this book. Um, lots of you who have signed on tonight and already bought the book. And if you haven't, well, I urge you to do so because it's a quite amazing read. It really does fill you in with a lot of gaps. So tonight's a very simple format. I'm going to hand over to Jung in a minute and she's going to talk and show you some extraordinary photographs for the next 25 minutes. And then she and I will talk, and then we'll bring in some of your questions. So please put them down in the Q and A box. And um, Jung is in Rome, as I said, and I'm incredibly happy to be introducing her tonight to all of you. So over to you, Jung.
1: Thank you very much, um, (laughs) Rosie, although I got my doctorate from York University, um, not Cambridge, but thank you. Um, Now, um, thank you very much. I'm um, I'm very pleased to to talk today Um, but unfortunately I can't see you but uh, we'll we'll all wait for the day when we can see each other. Now um, I I think before I get on to the story of the three sisters I just like to say a few words about how I became a writer and how I came to write this book. Um, I loved writing when I was a child, but when I was growing up in China in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, China was under the tyranny of Mao and nearly all writers were persecuted, you know, sent to the Gulag, you know, some were even executed and driven to suicide. Even writing for oneself was dangerous. I remember writing my first poem on my 16th birthday in 1968, in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. I was lying in bed polishing my poem when I heard the door banging. The red guards had come to raid our flat. And if they had seen my poem, I would get into trouble and my whole family would get into trouble. So I had to quickly rush to the bathroom to tear up my poem and flush it down the toilet. And that ended my first venture in writing. But the desire to write never left me. And in the following years, I was exiled to the edge of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant. And then I became a steel worker and an electrician. When I was um, spreading manure in the paddy fields, and when I was checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen, but I couldn't put pen to paper. then in 1976, Mao died and China began to change. And in 1978, I became one of the first group of um, Chinese students to come and study in Britain. Um, Then in Britain, I, um, I could then write, but at that moment, the desire to write left me because I had come to a a completely different world. It was like landing on Mars, everything was different. So I just wanted to spend every minute soaking up, I mean, you know, the atmosphere, the life, the everything of this new world. And to write for me was to look backward and inward into a past I wanted to forget all about. And so, um, so I didn't write, I just enjoyed life. You know, I must be the first Chinese to walk into an English pub because when we came to Britain, we um, were given very strict rules. And one particular one was don't go into a British pub um, because the Chinese word for pub was jiu ba which in those years suggested somewhere indecent with nude women gyrating. And so we were forbidden to go to the pub. And, but of course I was torn with curiosity. And I, one day I um, sneaked out of the college. I darted across the road. I went to, I pushed the door of a pub open and I walked in and of course I saw nothing of the kind. No new women generating only some older men sitting there drinking beer. Now I was rather disappointed. So I was enjoying life and I didn't want to write. Um, You know in the Cultural Revolution my father died and my grandmother, my beloved grandmother died who had brought us up And um, their death remained the most painful spot in my heart. So I didn't want to think about all this. And then 10 years after I came to Britain, my mother came to London to stay with me. And for the first time, she told me the stories of her life and the stories of um, my grandmother. And once my mother started, she couldn't stop she stayed with me for six months and she talked every day. And when I was out working, she talked into a tape recorder. And when I was listening to my mother, I kept saying to myself, I've got to write all this down. And then I, I realized that my mother seemed to know that I had cherished this unspoken dream of becoming a writer. She was helping me to fulfill this dream. so after my mother left, I sat down, I transcribed um, her tapes and I started writing Wild Swans. After Wild Swans was published in 1991, and I, I became a writer. And I wrote my next book with my husband John Halliday, um, a biography of Mao, and then I wrote a biography of Empress Dalja Tsachi. And after the biography of Empress Dalja Tsachi was published in 2013, I was thinking about my next book. Uh, there was a question that was constantly in my mind when I was writing, when I was writing the story, the biography of the empress dowager um i wondered what happened why what happened with china in the 40 years before her death in 1908 and mao seizing power in 1949 before her death the empress dowager who had who was the um, the first modernizer who brought sorry who brought Medieval China into the modern age, and her last project was to start a constitutional to turn China into a constitutional monarchy um, with an elected parliament. She she started um, uh, you know women's liberation in China with a ban on foot binding. And um, then 40 years later, China sank into this totalitarian abyss. And what happened in those 40 years interested me very much. And this man, Sun Yat-sen, who's called the, the father of Republican China or the father of China even, was the man most responsible for why China how, and how China went from the Empress Dowager's time when the beginning of it, when China was even pursuing democracy to Mao's totalitarian rule. And he was the man most responsible for this. So I, this, I thought I would write a biography of Sun yat But after I done many, much research and collected many, materials then i got and i i you know, i got bored with shenya xian i i found i really, i thought that here is another man bit like mao all he wanted was power and and he pursued power in a single minded way and he had no other life and i thought i didn't want to devote another book to him and in the meantime I realized, I, I, I got fascinated with his wife, red sister, Ching Ling, and her sisters, big sister, Ailing and little sister, Mei Ling. And they seem to be really extraordinary people. And they, the three sisters and their husbands, Sun xian and Chiang Kai-shek, who was the ruler of China before Mao. Their lives were the most interesting lives and they both answered my questions of what happened in China in those 40 years and much more, their personalities and so on. So that's how I decided to write the story of the three sisters. And um, now... I just wanted to show you some pictures of the the sisters. And this is the cover of the book. Now, big sister Ailing on one side, red sister Qingling on the other, with their mother um, who came from the oldest Catholic or Christian families in China and one of the districts in Shanghai is named after her family. And their father, Charlie Song, also had a very interesting experience or background. He went to America in the late 1870s, basically as a coolie, but then he escaped and ended up in the American South, and he became the first Chinese to be converted by the Southern Methodists. He was in America for seven years, and then he went 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 back to China to be a preacher, and then a businessman. He made lots of money, and with the money, what he most wanted to do was to give his children an American education. So he sent his three daughters as well as three sons to be educated in America. Eileen, big sister, went to America in 1904 when she was 14. She was the first Chinese girl to be educated in America. The other two sisters followed. and with little sister Maylene going to America as young as nine and she spent 10 years in America. What seemed to me to be extraordinary was that Charlie had this tremendous faith in American society and the the American Methodist, Methodist circle. Um, because these girls were in America when they were very young. They had no adult members of the family to look after them. And they were in America like little sister, mating completely alone. Now, Red Sister, Ling came back to China after her education, when she was in her early 20s. And her hero was Sun Yatian, this so-called father of China. And she fell in love with him um, because Sun was the first man to advocate republicanism. And she was madly in love with him and she wanted to marry him. But her parents were furiously against the marriage, even though they had supported Sun's republican revolution. And Sun Yuxian, as you can see from this picture, is much older, much, much older. He was in his late forties and when she was in her early twenties. And um, he had, he was married. He had a wife and many concubines and many other women. And basically he was a womanizer. And so her parents then refused to allow her to marry Sun yat and locked her up in her bedroom on the upstairs in their house. And she climbed out of the window and boarded a ship and went to Japan and married him there. But that was in 1915. But, but a few years later, she was bitterly disappointed because all Sun yat wanted was, was his political ambition. And in 1922, the couple were surrounded by the army of Sun's political rival who wanted to drive out Sun. And um, she, she soon fled. Red Sister Qingling volunteered to stay behind to cover Sun Yixian's escape. But she didn't know that after her husband arrived in safety, he still didn't want her to leave. He wanted her to be there so the enemy would start a war. And um, so he had an excuse. He would have an excuse to fight back. And she nearly died. She Then she escaped um, for two days and two nights when he didn't lift a finger to to save her and she had she suffered a miscarriage during her hellish flight so she fell out of love after that but then she decided that she didn't want to divorce him and instead she wanted to She wanted to make make deals with him. And the deal she most wanted was to emerge in public as a political figure in her own right. And this, which was unheard of in China in those years. And this was her um, appearing in public with her husband. I mean, you can see she was the only woman there, her husband behind the desk. Um, and she was the first public, you know, public figure, a woman as a public figure. And this was the opening ceremony of the Wangpo Po Military Academy. And Sun yat um, next to the other, on the other side of Sun yat was Chiang Kai-shek, the head of the military academy. Basically, Sun Yat-sen's ambition was to be the president of China, and in order to achieve this, he brought in the Russians, the Soviet Russians, to sponsor his war against the Beijing government, which was actually a democratically elected government, and... um, then he died before he achieved his goal. He died in 1925. And at this point, Chiang Kai-shek decided he wanted to drive out the Russians. Chiang Kai-shek was anti-communist. So he he split from the Russians and drove out the Chinese communists. Now this was just before Chiang Kai-shek made the move in 1927, when the three sisters were together for the last genuinely happy picture they took together. Qingling, red sister in the dark Chongsan was a Leninist. She'd been converted by by the Russians to be a Leninist. And, and the other two sisters were passionately against communism. And so when Chiang Kai-shek split from the communists, they were torn apart by the two antagonistic political camps. Little sister mei married Chiang Kai-shek in December, 1927. And they, this was the chance on their honeymoon. Now, but little sister Mei Lin, she then sank into depression for seven years. Basically life with Chiang Kai-shek was not she had dreamed of. And Chiang Kai-shek had started his political career as an assassin. He had assassinated Sun yat main political rival. And as a result, he became Sun Yatian's successor. But as a result, he was pursued by assassins himself. Um, And there were lots of them from every other direction, um, every place in China. And one lot of them got into their bedroom. as a result of the fright, and little sister Mei Ling suffered a miscarriage herself and was never able to have children, just like her sister, red sister, Qing Ling. Now, Chiang Kai-shek was madly in love with his wife and he wanted to pull her out of depression. So in 1932, he gave her a birthday present, a necklace, But as you can see, it's no ordinary necklace. It encircled a whole mountain. Um, What Chiang Kai-shek did was he had French pine trees imported and planted. And then these foreign trees color in autumn in distinctive way from the local trees. And so they formed this this gorgeous necklace. And the pendant, the jewel of the necklace was a beautiful villa, which had green blue tiles on the roof and they sparkle in the sun. Just like a real jewel. And Big Sister Eileen became Chiang Kai shek's main unofficial political advisor. She was the smartest, according to her little sister, Meiling, the smartest of her family. And she she also had a fantastic financial mind and she made her husband, H.H. H. H. Kong, Chiang Kai-shek's finance minister and the prime minister for many years with her being the brain behind the man. And meanwhile, red sister, Ling went into exile in Russia and in Berlin. And this picture was taken in the Caucasus. And to her left was a man called Deng Da, and she fell madly in love with him. Deng Da was a very charismatic man with leadership qualities. In fact, while they were in Moscow, Stalin was so impressed with him. Stalin asked him to be the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. And he said, you know, he didn't even believe in communism. And uh, so he had to flee Stalin's Russia and he went to uh, Germany. And what Deng Da wanted was to form a third party different from the communists and the nationalists. And he became the biggest threat to Chiang Kai-shek. And Chiang Kai-shek had, when he, well, he went back to China to form this third party and Chiang Kai-shek had him arrested and secretly executed. And Red Sister, Ling was in love with him Um, and um, she was heartbroken and uh, and she developed this tremendous hate for Chiang Kai-shek and she devoted the rest of her life or the the future years of her life helping Mao and Stalin to beat Chiang Kai-shek. Now, little sister Mei-Ling as Madame Chiang Kai-shek was China's first lady for 22 years from 1928 when Chiang Kai-shek seized power to 1949 when Mao drove them out of the mainland and and Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan. This picture was in 1937 when the war with Japan broke out. And she was here visiting wounded soldiers. As a wartime first lady in China, from China, she made a triumphant visit to America. Um, I mean, I mean, here she is addressing Congress and the standing ovation lasted many minutes. And here she is with a bouquet on her laps, and she was about to address a a crowd of 30,000 at Hollywood Bowl. The man sitting next to her, to her right, David Kung, big sister Eileen's elder son, Big sister Eileen was the only person of the three sisters who had children. And she had four children and she two sons, two daughters. She basically gave two of them to her little sister to be brought up as the children of little sister. And um, so that's David. On the other side, to the other side is Jeanette Meiling's, Niece, I know that you can see her. Um, and she, Jeanette um, was gay. Very unusual for those years. She didn't try to hide, hide this fact. Instead, she flaunted it. She wore men's hairdo and men's clothes. So in America, President Roosevelt called her my boy. And mei and Chiang Kai-shek were at Cairo conference with President Roosevelt and um, Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And the war created a united front. So the three politically divided sisters were back together. Now here they were all in Chongqing, the wartime, China's wartime capital with Chiang Kai-shek. But you can see Red Sister Qinglin stood apart from the others. And she also made sure she never smiled in Chiang Kai-shek's presence. Now there are the three brothers with their three wives. So we'll skip them for now. And this is Chiang, Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek's picture on Tiananmen Gate after the war with Japan ended, the, ended the, the Second World War ended. And Chiang Kai-shek's picture is where Mao's picture is today. But after the war against Japan, a civil war immediately started between Chiang Kai-shek and Mao's communists and Mao beat Chiang Kai-shek. And this was Chiang Kai-shek in 1949, just before he fled the mainland for Taiwan in his family temple. And you can see Chiang Kai-shek um, in front looking downcast and to his right, the man wearing a hat, was his, his son, Chingguo, his only blood son. Chinguo was kept hostage, was taken hostage in Russia when he was 15. He was kept by Stalin and to blackmail Chiang Kai shek. And Chiang Kai shek desperately wanted his son back. He knew his son was suffering much. Chinguo was in the gulag and, you know, suffered tremendously. And so Chiang Kai shek offered a deal to Stalin, he traded his son's return with the survival of the Chinese communists. So at a time when Chiang Kai-shek could have wiped out the communists in the 1930s, particularly on the long march, he let them go. So as a result, he got his son back, but he eventually lost China. Now, after Chiang Kai-shek died in Taiwan in 1975, Ching became Chiang's successor. It was Chiang Ching-kuo who started the process for democracy in Taiwan, which it is today. Now, okay, now Mm, if I say to go back, at this point when Chiang Kai-shek was in mainland China, and Mei Ling was not with, his, with her husband because she had always wanted to leave Chang Kai-shek. And she stayed in New York and she didn't want to go to Taiwan. Um, but of course she was very torn because um, you know, to abandon your husband when he was facing the biggest crisis in his life was bad form. And um, and she also didn't want to lend a propaganda coup to the communists. So she was very torn and she asked a big sister for advice. And big sister Aiding was very, was a very devout Christian. And she asked her her little sister to pray, pray and pray. And so Mei-Ling prayed for months. And then one day, one night, she felt she heard God speaking to her, asking her to go to Taiwan to join her husband. And so she went to Taiwan. And this was she and her husband eating, actually under a portrait of her husband. Now, meanwhile, Red Sister Qingling stayed in mainland China and rose to become Mao's vice chair. Here she was with Mao on Tiananmen Gate and to her, and she was the shorter woman, the taller woman is the prince, Princess Xiong, Sienuk, and Xiong's wife. And next to on the right hand side of Qinglin Qingling is Prime Minister Zhou Enlai, and next to Zhou Enlai is Deng Xiaoping, the post Mao paramount leader. So you can see how important Red Sister Qingling was in Red China. She lived, she collaborated with Mao through Mao's rule and the, in the Cultural Revolution, which she actually hated, but she didn't speak up. And Mao died in 1976. And this was Mao's memorial service, vast memorial service on Tiananmen Square. And she was the shortest woman supported by a member of her staff. You may notice The gaps in the lineup of the leaders. Well, they were the places for the gang of four, you know, leading by leading and with Mao's wife Jiang Qing as the leader. When the memorial service was held, the Gang of Four was very much in power. But by the time the picture was published, they had gone, gone to prison, um, and so the the, um, the editor um, there was nothing the editor could do but to hastily re, re, erase their figures, leaving this conspicuous space. Um, okay, big, big Sister Eilings birthday celebrated in. Taiwan with a beaming Chiang Kai-shek who actually had a wonderful time um, in, in Taiwan because Mao was threatening to take Taiwan, America. Every time Mao made a threat, America deepened its commitment to defend Taiwan. Um, now, you might wonder wha- what Elvis Presley is doing um, in this tale of the three sisters. Well, the lady he was holding is Deborah Paget, who was the leading lady in Elvis's first film, Love Me Tender. Uh, according to her, Elvis proposed to her but she turned down the queen, the king to marry Eileen's younger son, Louis. Now here is um, um, Deborah Paget with me when I was interviewing her in Texas, in Houston. And, and she is where she still is. And the man next to her is called the Greg. He is her son with Louis, and he is the only only blood descendant of the three Song sisters. And, she, and he had he had no interest in being the keeper of the sisters' legacy, and treasured his privacy above everything else. Now, little sister Eileen died in 2003, having seen three centuries. And this was her aged about 100. Okay, I think that's their story in
0: 25, maybe more minutes. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, Jung, thank you so much. That was um... That was just amazing. Um, those pictures are extraordinary. I, when I looked at that picture of um, the Mao Memorial, I thought those gaps are really funny and weird. And now, of course, you've explained it. The first time <laughs> yes. of definitely pictures can tell a lie. Um, so what, what did you think? Did you know about the Sung sisters when you were growing up? Were they a great legend? Were they seen as people of what? what did you think of them?
1: Oh, oh yeah. I mean, they were the most famous sisters in China or in the Chinese speaking world. They were extremely famous, of course, you know, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Madame Sun yat and you know, the vice chair of Red China. And of course we all knew about them. And of course the stories we were told were, you know, the anti-communists ones mm-hmm. were the villains. And we, when we were children, we were always told that little sister Meiling had beautiful skin because she bathed every day in milk. You know, milk was regarded as the most nutritious thing and which all children should have, but only the privileged few had access to milk. So to bath in milk was the, the most outrageous thing. And um, and so that was her story. And I'm a teacher. Once tentatively tried to, um, to 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 question this myth, and he said to you, to us, to the children, do you really think bathing in milk was pleasant? <laughs> and of course, he soon joined the ranks of the condemned rightists. Wow. Um, Red Sister Qingling was revered, but I always felt that there was there was one thing very strange, which was we all knew, <clears throat> we all heard the story that she had an affair with her bodyguard um, and she had stopped being Madame Sun yat and the party was only keeping Giving, let her keep the name as out of consideration or without some kind heart um, this, I mean many people still believe, in, believe this story today and this is very strange to me because in China in those years we heard no gossip whatsoever about the leaders private lives. <clears throat> And she was the only person to be allowed to be gossiped about. Um, And um, now I think, of course, because she was the the only woman in the communist leadership. And the other thing was because she was relatively independent. And so the story was like a, a thread hanging there. So any minute the party can say she was no longer Madame Sun Yatian. therefore she would be open to persecution, you know, the lot. Um, so we, those were the things. I mean, they are the biggest um, legends um, in the Chinese speaking world.
0: And the mm-hmm. fact that they, they were women who in a way had to exercise their intelligence through men, There was presumably no other way in which they could exert the extraordinary power that they did manage to exert.
1: You you are absolutely right, you know, um, I mean, that was the time, um, you know, big sister Eileen was definitely more in by common, by consensus, she was much more intelligent than her husband. Um, who was you know, Chiang Kai-shek's prime minister and mm-hmm. the finance minister for years and years, a job she, she, she could have had. And also she was definitely, I think, probably more smart than Chiang Kai-shek. Mm-hmm. Of course, she had flaws. She was very corrupt, hugely corrupt, made herself one of the richest women in China through corruption, you know, insider knowledge or policies she made herself. Um, But she was smarter than Chiang Kai-shek. So um, when the civil war started after the Japanese surrender um, although Chiang Kai-shek seemed still to be at the top of his power, you know, he was hailed as this victor who beat Chiang Kai-shek. In fact, America beat Chiang, beat I mean, who beat Japan.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: she believed that it was her doing, or it was his doing? I'm sorry. She believed that he was the hero who beat the Japanese. You know, when in fact it was America, and um, and um, and so he was in, hugely in delusion. And a big sister, Eileen, never thought he could make it. He could beat Chiang Kai-shek. So both he and Chiang Kai-shek's wife um, lost faith in Chiang Kai-shek at the beginning even of the Civil War.
0: <laughs> so, so what is it extraordinary about your book and the way that you write? And I mean, it's true about the My biography and obviously about Wild Swans is that you bring in you know the personal things that affect gigantic world politics and none more so than the story about Chiang Kai-shek's son and the fact that he he could not get him back that he was a pawn and that you know you said you said it quite casually he lost China because of it um is that really true that that he could have at that point attacked Mao's troops and won Yes,
1: yes. Mao's
0: troops were
1: tiny. They were in the thousands or maybe a few tens of thousands. They were tiny. Um, and Chiang Kai-shek had to build these fortresses. I mean, you know, during the long march, um, even when we were, John and I were writing about Mao, we combed through the whole period. And we found that there were so many times that he really could have wiped out the Red Army, but he let them go. And um, of course, in the Russian archives, there were many documents like this. It mm. was saying Chiang Kai-shek asked his son back. After each cr- critical moment when he let the Red Army go, he would immediately after Mos- ask Moscow to release his son. Wow. That was the way he did the deal. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and of course, Moscow, every time, pretended um, that his son didn't want to come back to China. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, until the war against Japan started in 1937, well, uh, during that period, just before, even you know, when the war was about to start. And Chiang Kai-shek gave the Red Army a terrific deal during the war, basically the Red Army didn't have to fight Japan on the front. I mean, they could do some guerrilla warfare behind Japanese lines. And they they didn't have to take his orders and all that. So the communists were able to build up their strength behind the Japanese line and to develop to to a position when they could beat Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek had many opponents, armed opponents, before the war against Japan started. I mean, quite a few of them could have replaced Chiang Kai-shek, but they all, their armies were all placed under Chiang Kai-shek's command when the war started and their armies were wiped out. And the only army other than Chiang Kai-shek's left was the Red Army. And so Mao was able to, Mao was able to use that army and
0: Russian help to beat Chiang Kai-shek. Extraordinary story. So your books are still banned in China, is that correct? Yes, yes. What what would the current regime think about this book? What would be their view of the Song Sisters now? Well, I mean, any book that doesn't
1: toe a party line is, is, you know, it's banned and the ban has become much more, um, much more, much harsher, much more vigorous in the recent years. I mean, now you could go to jail, you could be arrested for speaking, for saying things like I say in this book, um, and the thing I say about Mao, um, people have been sent to prison Mm. for saying much, much less. Um, So uh, what the book is banned, is unavailable. And before there were many those banned books were available in Hong Kong. And many people went to Hong Kong to buy banned books. And now, of course, they all but totally disappeared. I mean, as we all know, what happened in Hong Kong and even before the current event, I mean, these Hong Kong booksellers had been arrested,
0: mm-hmm.
1: kidnapped, um, and and sent to prison in mainland China. And so that this route has been sort of a cut off. And of course, the internet for a while was a huge source of distribution of information um, uh, in China even. And my books have been, you know, scanned, have been people have typed every word into the computer for other people to download. There had been thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, uh, um, of the hits, reads, and, you know, comments. Um, and now they completely wiped out. I mean, the internet has turned out to be the most effective tool of
0: a totalitarian rule. Oh. Oh, that's so scary. Um, I'm going to bring in some questions from some of our audience questions and do keep them coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody has in fact, uh, Rhonda has, Email to say I'm I'm proud to say that I facilitated your coming to Hong Kong back in 1997, just after the handover, to speak at the World Economic Development Congress and share your story with our delegates. And Rhonda wants to know what your message to them would now be in these turbulent times, to people in Hong Kong particularly.
1: Oh. <laughs> Well, I'm, I feel very much, I mean, humbled that to say the least, because seeing how brave they were and, um, and it was just, I'm hugely moved. I'm, I'm now writing from a safe distance in Mm -hmm. Britain. And I, I mean, I have been advised not to go to mainland China, not to go to Hong Kong. And so I'm, I'm safe. I, I think at least. Um, But, um, you know, all these millions of people in Hong Kong turning out, you know, it was just incredibly moving. You know, when I first went to Hong Kong in the 1980s, um, everybody said the Hong Kongers had no interest in politics. And indeed, when I met um, university professors and writers, they were talking about shares. (laughs) you know, share how which share is completely beyond me. I mean, now to make such that population so you know, I mean, you know, way political and um and it was just such a huge transition. And uh, I I think I'm just full of admiration
0: for them. Yeah, well it's a it's a really tough story. We've got a couple of questions about the um the children. I mean saying that um Gregory doesn't seem to have much interest in the Sung family. There's also a question about the Yolanda and Yong Yi who were the adop- well semi-adopted children of Qingling who she, she obviously adored them. And uh, Camilla Costa wants to know what happened to them. And she also wants to know if there's any legacy plans about the sisters, like will there be a museum? I suppose it would have to be in Taiwan if there was one, but
1: well, I mean, it just start from the sisters. Well, I say Greg was not interested in being the keeper of the songs of the sisters. Um, I mean, of course, he's, he's interested in his family history and in the in the stories of the sisters. He just wanted to keep his, he didn't want any demand to put on him. He wanted to be, um, to lead his life. Um, and looking after his mother was the center. I mean, he is still, he's not married. I mean, looking after his mother is the center of his life. Now, the other two um, women who were adopted by Red Sister Qingling, had were in very interesting stories themselves. Um, just just one of them yeah. was was their treatment um, when Red Sister Qingling died. Um, they were they were not um, they were not allowed or they still they are not they are not sort of officially recognized. And this was only slightly to do with the fact that there was no formal procedure to adopt them. She just adopted them. She, she, they were the daughters of her favorite bodyguard and who mm-hmm. was the co-victim in this in this rumor about her affair. You know, and but but I mean she but she treated him really like her Son, I mean, she was very broken by the fact that she could never have children again, because she adored children. She so she treated their father like her son. And then when, then, then, then these two daughters, and she brought them up um, because their own life was quite miserable mm-hmm. you know, in the famine and starvation and so on. So she brought them up and she doted on them. And she, instead of wanting them to call her grandmother, which was other people, what other people asked the two daughters, the two girls to call her. She wanted them to call her mother. I mean, here was always this sort of void of wanting to be a mother and they filled that. Now, when she died, the two girls and the Beijing <clears throat> made the big thing of inviting all Qingling's relatives, to come from overseas to China to, to pay her uh, last respect. Um, but they all said, they all re- responded with a resounding, no, with, with a resounding silence, including, you know, little mm-hmm. sister Mei um, So Beijing made a big deal about the, the family, but they didn't allow these two women to appear in public as her adopted daughter. And this was, um, this was because these two daughters were not sons; They had nothing to do with the Song and Chiang Kai-shek and the whole lot. And Beijing made a big deal about Qingling's family because they want to use that to take Taiwan, mm-hmm. to bring Taiwan under its fold. But the two sisters had no blood relationship with with them, with Chiang Kai-shek and, and Taiwan and you know whatever. So they were completely brushed aside as non non-people. Um, Anyway, so today I think one of them, Yolanda. Yolanda is the first kind of good time girl in China when China when with you know the, I don't want to go into the details, but she was she was really loving every minute of it with her you know beautiful clothes when China began to have these going to restaurants and bars you know whatever using makeup and all that and she she was upon. And she became a, a film star, not a star, film actress.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she still lives in China. And the other sister, Yongjie, um, was um, left China she, after Qingling's death and, um, and completely unheard of. I mean, nobody's, um, mm-hmm. nobody knows what's happened to her. I mean, she never returned to China. And you
0: were never able to find her?
1: No, well, I, I wasn't. I mean, everybody
0: I asked um, Fascinating. Said no. So we're coming towards the end of the time, but I, I've got one question in, and it's a question I want to ask you, which is the father, Charlie Tsung, do you think, I mean, it was such an extraordinary thing to send your daughters off so far away at, you know, one of them at the age of nine to not see them for more or less 10 years. What do you think he wanted for them? Was he proud of them? She, they want, he wanted them to
1: to benefit from American education and American society and to turn China into a country that is more like America. And um, the seven years in America had made him really adore that country.
0: And so he did see that his if he educated his daughters like that, they might be able to have an influence mm. on China. Yes, very well, they much. Certain, so.
1: They certainly very did. Much. Well, they certainly did. You know, I think the big sister, ailings um, influence um, and Anne mailing's influence um, on Chiang Kai-shek was definitely noticeable, and they certainly made Chiang Kai-shek's rule more humane, I mean, better. I mean, he was a dictator, but yeah. he was not as bad, nearly as bad as Mao, and he was not as bad as he might have been without the sisters, they converted him to Christianity. And that was very important. I mean, to be, uh, the Chiang kai became quite devout as well. I mean, to become a Christian and to want to be like America, to want to make friends with America. And those two are the biggest constraints on um, someone who could otherwise be a really awful
0: dictator. And do you think that, that's one of the biggest parts of their legacy, that they were able to make that part of the relationship happen?
1: Yes, I think that's very important. In fact, that is so important. I think it it is in a way relevant to how Taiwan could become a democracy after Chiang Kai-shek died. Mm. Um, I, I mean, uh, Qingguo, there was all this and uh, what Chiang Kai-shek was like, um, the fact that, you know, as I said, he was Christian, but most importantly, he wanted to be friends with America. I mean, the ground was there. Um, and, um, and that's all relevant to this only democracy among, you know, in the Chinese
0: speaking world. So as the last question, Young, because a lot of people have asked questions like this in various forms. Um, in particular, Stephanie Williams, I mean, saying with your perspective, how do you see the future of China now? Do you feel optimistic, um, pessimistic, worried? Um?
1: Well, the thing is, I, I, I'm now more hesitant than ever to predict the future because I didn't foresee that China had turned to, it, to what it is today. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I didn't think it would become what it is under Mr. Xi. I didn't, I didn't foresee somebody like Mr. Xi to come to power. I mean, now China is at its most repressive since Mao's death after these decades. And, um, and it's sort of, um, it's, it's bent on beating American to be the dominant world power in the nasty way, in a communist way. Um, so I didn't foresee that. So I can't re- think about, the can't predict the future. But uh, what I have, can see is China, there is a period of China, which I, they, I'm glad to say I discovered writing this book, when China was a functioning democracy. Mm-hmm. This was between 1912, when the Republic was founded to 1928, when Chiang Kai-shek seized the power using Soviet built military machine and in those 16 years, China had elections yeah. and the government were elected, there was there were functioning parliaments and the legal, independent legal system was in progress and complete freedom of speech, press freedom. I mean, the great, the giants of modern China in literature, arts, and many other areas were, were from this period, I and mean, this was the golden period of China. I mean, the economy was doing fantastically well, and um, so th- so democracy worked um, in China, um, as we can see, democracy is working in Taiwan. So there is that. Um, it's um, and then some people say somehow democracy doesn't suit China. I I just I just don't believe that, but I then. I also have to say that after communist rule, Mao's rule, um, I think probably now it's even more difficult, it's more difficult to turn China into a democracy than a hundred years ago.
0: Goodness. That's not very um. That's not very cheery. <laughs> um,
1: well, I mean, no, but I mean, I don't no. want to end in you know, a pessimistic note. i i No, is it's very realistic. I, myself, I mean, I um, before not having um, um, foreseen what China would um, be like would turn out, but I think. Um, on the other hand you know things with this um, with this uh, kind of regimes you never know what's happening
0: mm-hmm. behind, the behind, scenes, the scenes. behind
1: the scenes I and mean, you never know i mean the changes are all very sudden um, and um, even you know great change i mean you know earth shattering uh, Changes, um, and by the time they happened, we know they were they happened. So I don't know, I, you know, I don't know what's happening. I hope, I hope positive things are happening, and I hope the country would take a turn um, for the for the for the better. And I do hope, you know, I I do most since most fervently believe that. Democracy really works for China, as I see researching this book. I mean, see this mm. golden period, and I really do hope that it will come back to that, um, to that again. And you know, with you know the three sisters story, I mean, they are what they are, um, as they are also partly the, the product of yes. that period. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, even in the Cultural Revolution, even with her collaboration with Mao and Red Sister had maintained a level of uh, humanity yeah. um, and a sense of repentance, a sense of guilt for what she was doing. Um, and, uh, and I hope I'm, I'm not giving it before. No, it,
0: it's very interesting that, you know, that they, they couldn't have been what, what they are if they hadn't. In a way been alive and coming of age in that particular period okay. when it was okay for Charlie yeah. Sung to say I'm going to educate my daughters in America. And boy what an education they got. So Jung thank you very very much indeed for joining us thank from you. Rome. Um, it's a wonderful book everybody, please buy it, there's details <laughs> online And thank you to all the people who've joined us, hundreds of you out there, and to everyone whose questions we couldn't get to, um, I hope that you got lots of things and you got lots of lovely messages from on the message machine saying how wonderful you are and how much people have enjoyed it. So it's fantastic to see you again and uh, thank you so much for being here with us tonight and good night to you all. Thank
1: you, thank you very much.